Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Madison, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMadison.com. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, as we are approaching the end of the year and Christmas, and as we are in between terms, maybe in school years, in our jobs, as we have this empty space to think and reflect, in between two decades, Lord, as we're coming out of the teens and into the 20s, Lord, would you teach us that great Advent lesson that we are in between also the two comings and appearings of the Messiah and the Lord of Lords. Would that reality become such, so palpable to us this morning through your word? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, one of the for a while, and if you've come to church, I, I imagine you've probably heard something about this idea before. If you're new to Christianity or if you're visiting, this is a really, really cool truth from the scriptures, which in a nutshell, it's the idea that when it comes to the work of Jesus in our lives, we both experience it now and we look forward to its completion. As an example, Jesus constantly spoke of the kingdom of God, and he both taught that it's in our midst so the kingdom of God is happening now, and he teaches us to pray, thy kingdom come, for the kingdom to come, to be fully established. So already, not yet. The already of our faith focuses on the thisness. I'm not sure if that's a word, but I made it up. Thisness and nowness of the kingdom. Because Jesus came, died, and rose again, we're forgiven, we're saved. Jesus says on the cross, it's finished. So in the power of the Holy Spirit, he is transforming the world. He is renewing all things. He is mighty to save now. The already also teaches us that this world was created by God and is good. So that means that there's deep meaning in our work, in cheese curds, in relationships, in music, in beauty, in our bodies. It is good. So the already puts an emphasis on victory and satisfaction in Jesus now. The not yet focuses on the futureness. Again, I don't know if that's a word either, but I made it up. Futureness and the heavenliness of the kingdom. The world is not yet completely untangled. All that is broken has not yet been fully healed. All tears have not yet been fully wiped away. All pain has not yet been fully consoled, but we rejoice with the scriptures that one day it will be. Amen? The not yet reminds us that we're actually exiles and sojourners on this earth. As the old song says, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. So listen to this from Hebrews 11. This is talking about the great saints of God who've gone before us. It says, they all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that desiring a better country, that is, a heavenly home. That's from Hebrews 11, which if you're familiar with the Bible, is that amazing passage about all the saints who've gone before us. So the not yet reminds us that we're built for eternity, not just for this life. The, king, the kingdom has been inaugurated. Inaugurated is the cool word you're supposed to use when you talk about this. It's, it's already happened with Jesus' first coming, but it's going to be completed in his second. Both of those are profoundly biblical truths, 
and we are meant to hold them at the same time together. But I've been thinking about how often we tend to emphasize one over the other. And actually, I think you can see this in certain parts of the world and in certain periods of history, uh, different communities have a proclivity to emphasize one over the other. So there have been periods in history where there is a massive emphasis on the not yet. It's all about going to heaven when you die. Um, the present is accepted as kind of tragic and full of woe, but it leads to glory in Jesus. It's kind of like an eternally oriented faith. I think you see this in the Middle Ages. I think in early movements of evangelicalism and kind of American gospel heart in the 19th century and in the 20th century, you see this. In communities that suffer and kind of experience pervasive poverty, there's often a, a way of clinging to these deeply biblical truths that, oh, Jesus is coming and he's going to make things right. My, my tears are going to be wiped away. And that focus is good. It's thoroughly biblical, but when it starts to kind of outshine or cover up the alreadiness of the kingdom, things get a bit wonky. Which is why almost always those periods in history are followed up by a pendulum swing where the church corrects itself and starts re-emphasizing the already. The this-ness of the kingdom. So the Middle Ages, if my history is right, gives way eventually to the Renaissance. And the Renaissance definitely focuses on kind of a this-ness of the world. You see this in the Enlightenment. I think in communities that prosper and experience peace, there's often a way of going to the scriptures and realizing, oh my gosh, we have God to thank for all this goodness. And there's a way that we can cherish those truths. And again, that is totally biblical. But if it starts to eclipse the not yetness, as my British friends would say, things get a bit wonky. Um, you're not supposed to do accents when you preach. I kind of did one there, that was close. Um, I think that's us. I think the American church is in a current state of emphasizing the already at the expense of the not yet. And we need to be reminded of the not yet, of the fact that all of us right now are waiting. Jesus gives the analogy like women with oil lamps lit, waiting for the bridegroom to come back. That according to the scriptures, we're exiles and sojourners. And of course, this has to be held in tension with the already, of course. But I know so many of you, I don't know all of you, but I have never been worried after talking to any of you that you are going to become an otherworldly ascetic. Not once have I left and been like, man, they are crazy monk, like hate this world status. Like they need to realize it's okay to enjoy life. Never thought that. I am worried, not about us, but just in general, that the American church has been really influenced by our culture on life exaltation. In a way that I hold, which is us, we're heavily focused on life exaltation in a way that I think sometimes can almost snuff out a hope or a desire for glory, which is deeply significant in the Bible. The season of Advent is so beautiful because it's the season which teaches us to live in both. Advent asks us to hold on to the two at the same time. Um, I've been in liturgical churches a long time and I feel like it's just starting to have its effect on me. I feel like this year in particular, I was like, oh my gosh, it, this is starting to produce something in me, having this done even two years in a row. So think about it. The incarnation, the first coming of Jesus, is the great capital A already. Amen? We believe that actually happened. 
It's 20, about to be 2020, I say this a lot, because something happened that many years ago, and that was the incarnation. It literally cracks history in two pieces. It's done, there is not one part of your life that is not ennobled by God stepping into our existence. Hallelujah. But the second coming, which is just as much a part of Advent as the first, is the great capital N and Y, not yet. He's coming to finally judge, restore, delight, and renew. Isaiah and Revelation say, the first heaven and earth will pass away. They will be rolled up like a garment. That image is like you in the back of your closet taking clothes to goodwill. I'm not going to use this anymore. That's what it says about the, the heaven and earth. And then a new heaven and earth will be revealed. And thus, as all the, the readings we've been reading, we get ready. We repent. We wait. We join the trees of the field and the sea as it roars. We join the martyrs and the saints before us who are calling, oh, Lord, come. Come, Lord Jesus. Um, we were talking about this morning, but I need to research this more, but I heard this week that joy to the world is actually about the second coming. Mind blown. Let earth receive her king. All of that is about him coming again, but it's also about the first, which is all of Advent. The season of Advent wants to remind you of both of those things. And that's what we've been doing for the past three weeks. So we've been looking in Psalms and seeing things that Jesus has inaugurated, things that he's begun, but which we still long for the completion of. So justice, Psalm 96, desire, Psalm 37. Last week was salvation with Psalm 62. And this week we finish with the profoundly beautiful and memorable Psalm 130, which is worth memorizing if you want to memorize something over Christmas break, because I know that's what you all do, right? Um, it gives us this picture of something else we're waiting for at the second coming of Jesus. And it doesn't have to do with justice. It's not about all the bad people out there we want to see get their comeuppance. It's not about getting what we want. It has to do with who we are. And it has to do with who we will be. It teaches us to wait and hope for our final, complete redemption in body and soul and spirit. It's so good. Flip there with me in your, in your Bible or your bulletin. If you've got a Bible, flip to Psalm 130. Um, if you're in your bulletin, it, it's there, and you can flip to it. Please do so now. You guys there? Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. This psalm begins in the depths, and if we were going to use modern-day language, we would say rock bottom. The psalmist is in the gutter, and he is crying out from the gutter. And we learn from verse 3, he's not there just because of injustice or like other people put him there. He's there because of his own sin. So verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? This guy has a guilty conscience just as much as he is in the depths. So you have to imagine, if this were a movie, this is that moment where a character wakes up to the consequences of their choices. Uh, all the montages of like driving race cars really fast on the road and binging at casinos and doing bad stuff, robbing banks, uh, they crack. They're at the end of their rope and in their misery, they realize, what have I done? I was laughing with Marissa this week about Jean Valjean's soliloquy in Les Mis. You know, what have I done, sweet Jesus? What have I done? Become a thief in the night. I'm not going to sing it. But it reminds me of that. The great picture of this in the scriptures is the prodigal son, and what a gift it is to us to just have Jesus tell a story about this experience. 
the prodigal son gets his inheritance, remember? He blows it. He parties really, really hard, and he loses everything. His money, his self-respect, his social respect, which is the when as a Jewish man eating the food that pigs are eating with pigs, which is the rock bottom, most possible rock bottom you can get. Jesus says he comes to his senses, literally, and cries out, oh no, what have I done? I've sinned. I've lost everything. Servants in my dad's house are better off than me. I want out. I want to go back to my father. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? Some of you might be able to relate to the super intense rock bottom moment but I assume that all of us can relate to the desire to want to be healed and to want to be out of our own patterns of brokenness and sinfulness. Even if it's not a shocking moment, a pervasive, I want out. This is the part of us that says, why do I keep on doing this? Why do I keep on treating this person that way? Why did I say that? Why am I like this? Um, St. Paul just hits the nail on the head in Romans 7. This is such a famous passage, but he says, I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing, said every human ever, right? So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand making me, listen to the language he chooses, captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, in bondage to his own self. And then he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul longs for deliverance from himself. He wants out. The record player is stuck in the groove and he's captive. And he's very clear he can't get out of himself. So this is the reality which we all feel, but which the scriptures put words to. And that is that we're all broken and we are in a helpless place in our sin. At the end of the day, you can be freed and delivered from all kinds of things. Political justice out there. All kinds of stuff in your relational life, work life, all those things. But the Bible is saying the great captor, the great oppressor, the great enemy is sin and our own sin. Psalm 130 and, and Romans 7 are both really clear about this. This is the reality of the depths, but they both also contain the good news, which we call the gospel. Look at Psalm 130, verse 4, what comes right after it. Right after this, this guy is processing this in, in the gutter, he says, but with you there's forgiveness that you may be feared. Right after Paul in Romans 7 says, who will deliver me from this body of death, you'll know, says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we believe that Jesus offers forgiveness for everything that got you in the pit. Hallelujah. And he also has the power to get you out. For the rest of our time, I want to think about how the first and second coming, the already not yet reality applies to that experience of redemption out of the pit. Sound good? Let's start with the first coming. 
Christmas is all about Jesus coming not just to make the world a better place, even though absolutely he does, but to come and take on our broken, sinful flesh and transform it from the inside out. So go to your Matthew reading and our gospel reading. Again, if you have your Bible, you can flip to it. It should be in one of the pages on there. Probably not too hard to find. This is in verse 20. This is Joseph trying to process what's happening in his life because this has never happened before. Wow, what an experience for both Mary and Joseph. I'm shocked every single year. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Now let's just stop there for a second. Jesus has a really significant background. Jesus is the Hebrew name Joshua. And Joshua was a Hebrew warrior. So he delivered Israel from actual enemies. He conquered actual enemy territory. So for Joseph and Mary and all the other Jews in that day who are under Roman control, that would have been a big deal. Like, well, the Messiah is here, and his name is Joshua. You can imagine, like, the kind of things people would have started been thinking about. But then comes that greatest of Bible jukes, that happens all the time in the Bible. Look at verse 21 again. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Paul asks, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Think deliver us in Prince of Egypt at that point. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And the answer, according to the angel in Christmas, Jesus. That's why he came. Christmas teaches us that God hears our cry in the depths and that he chose through the incarnation to step down in the depths. Jesus takes off the manhole in the street and steps down in the sewer where we live. He enters rock bottom and the shimmering mystery of Christmas came us from the inside. Is that in order to change us from the inside out, he didn't just come to us, he became us from the inside out. So a very wonderful old dead Christian guy from way back in the day named Gregory Nazianzus. He puts it like this. He's a church father. That which he has not assumed, he has not healed. That, would he, that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. Meaning, if there's a part of us that Jesus didn't become, then that isn't healed in his redemption. And so Jesus became all of you. He took on all of human experience. And the Bible says that on the cross, Jesus takes that which he has assumed and he puts it to death. So think of that cyclical record player of cyclical broken sin that we're trapped in. He takes it and he smashes it on the cross. And the resurrection is him bringing it back in its glorified and transformed state. Hallelujah. And because Jesus has already come and he has already died and risen, then that means that is available to us now. Forgiveness, deliverance, now, here, today. Um, I love an old emo grunge band from the 90s called Sunny Day Real Estate. And when their leader found himself at rock bottom, their lead singer, uh, back in the height when their band was like about to explode and they were the coolest thing in Seattle, which was like the coolest city in America, he gets on rock bottom and he gets to the end of himself and cries out to God and converts to Christianity, which was like, what? 
And when all his flannel, long-haired, grungy fans freaked out, like, no, you know, he wrote this. For a long time, I dwelt on a lot of pain in my life, pain that I had tried to get rid of in many different ways. I watched myself slowly shrivel up into a hopeless, bitter, lonely person. Well, one thing led to another, and I couldn't take it anymore, so I took a shot on calling upon God, and he answered me. My pain was gone. I was full of joy. I had hope again. All the hope that was squeezed out of me was replaced ten times. I must say that the true God is the one who is in the Bible, Jesus Christ. He has showed himself to me so clearly that I couldn't possibly believe otherwise. I would be a fool to say that he hasn't worked miracles in my life. Sorry, grunge fans. I love that. Today, Jesus is offering that. Transformation, renewal, beginning, new birth. That's the gospel, and that is what Christmas is all about. Notice, that is what the angel chooses to say to Gabriel. Sorry, to Joseph. He's coming to save the people from their sins, from the depths. That's the already. But what about the not yet? Well, when we turn to Jesus, he begins the process of transformation, just like that guy experienced, the lead singer from Sunny Day Real Estate, um, of delivering us. But the Bible says that the miraculous work of the Spirit in our life is the first fruits of the work. Now, this is where I want the hope muscle in you to start being stretched by the Bible here. All the good things are the first fruits, meaning it's kind of like the teaser or the trailer for the real show of what God is going to do in us. And the promise of the not yet is that when Christ returns, he will complete it. All of that will be fully bloomed. Think of, again, that great vision of the resurrection is a tree with a flower blooming. It's what Jesus is in Isaiah. A branch from Jesse shall bear fruit. The whole tree blossoming. Even as we experience the work of Jesus, we still wrestle with our brokenness, right? Everybody does. Everybody still can identify with the, the Romans 7. I do sometimes what I don't want to do, and I do what I want to do, and I'm trapped, and ah. But one day Jesus is coming back to complete it. That isn't to contradict that he's already doing amazing things in us. It's just to augment it. It's to put a cherry on the top of it. So here are two passages from the New Testament which talk about this. And as I read these, one's from 1 John, one's from Romans, I want you to hear how the work of God's redemption is both now and coming, and how the hope and waiting for that redemption does something in us now. It has its effect on us. These are really, really good. Here's 1 John 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are now. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, Jesus' second coming, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Romans 8, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. 
to be set free from its bondage to corruption. You see that deliverance language? And obtain the freedom of glory of the children of God. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he sees? But if we hope for what not just so beautiful for it with patience. Is that not just so beautiful? If you know Jesus and you've been a Christian for a while here this morning, think about the time that you felt most close to him, that you felt most like his love was pulsing through you and you really did know, I know that I'm forgiven in Jesus. And you felt like new life was starting to happen in you. Think of the time you most felt purified and dignified by the blood of, his, by the blood of Christ and empowered by his spirit. Now imagine if that was amplified a hundredfold in your person. Every other sin or tension that you experience in your heart or in your mind, every shame or confusion is gone, and you're renewed to the bone. That is a shadow of a guess at what Jesus is going to do in us and through us come glory. I love how 1 John admits what we will be hasn't even really been revealed yet. But Jesus' resurrection is a foretaste. He's the example of the prototype of what we will become. We'll be like him, fully conformed to his image. And just something that has really captured me this week, the Bible always ties this process of sanctification to seeing Jesus. Um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that we with unveiled faces behold the glory of Jesus. So Moses used to have a veil when he would encounter God because it was too much for him to take. But he says in Jesus, the veil is removed, and when we see Jesus, we start to change and metamorphose to become like him from one degree to another. It's amazing. But he also says in 1 Corinthians 13 that even so, we see through a glass darkly, or in a newer translation, we're still seeing in like a certain amount of smoke and mirrors. It's not the full picture yet, and so our transformation isn't complete. But what does 1 John say? When he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So it's almost like our process of being conformed to the image of Jesus and becoming like him is like a painting or a mural of Jesus that's behind a layer of plaster or like old, you know, wallpaper that's super annoying to get off. And as we draw close to him in word and sacrament, as the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus to us in our inner being, it's like we're slowly uncovering that layer of plaster to kind of get the picture of what he looks like. And Paul says following Jesus is constantly beholding more and more of seeing Jesus more clearly and more fully. And with every single more inch of the picture that we get of Jesus, we're changed. To see him is to be changed. But we never get the complete picture in this life. The hope of glory is seeing him face to face. And according to John and Paul, that experience alone of just seeing him, of beholding him with no smoke or mirrors or partiality will immediately transform us completely. What a thing to hope in. Um, I love the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins, and at the end of one of his poems, he says this, in a flash, 
at a trumpet crash. I am all at once what Christ is, since he was what I am. There's no better way to talk about the first and second coming of that. In a flash at a trumpet crash, I am all at once what Christ is, since he was what I am. So what do we do with that truth? We wait and we hope. Go back to your psalm one last time. Psalm 130. Verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The man who begins in the pit ends up with this confidence experience of forgiveness and is full of hope and anticipation. That image is just one of my favorite in the, the Psalms, more than watchmen for the morning. It's like this, this guy, like you got to think of him like a barricade or a fortress in the middle of a dark, cold night where danger's everywhere, and he's just locked into the horizon waiting for that's how the psalmist says he's duty to be, feel safe. That's how the psalmist says he's waiting. He's like a watchman. To be a Christian is to have that confidence. It's to be confident of what Jesus has done and utterly confident of what Jesus will do. That's kind of the advent already not yet posture. So this Christmas, there will be so much happening in your life. I'm sure that's really good. You'll eat really good things. You might get a few gifts. Um, because of Jesus' incarnation, rich times with family, we can say amen to all of it. Everything he's doing in you, everything he's done in you, we can thank God for and rejoice at the first coming of his incarnation that we have forgiveness and salvation in Jesus. And then there'll be all those things that happen with Christmas where it doesn't turn out like you want. Maybe this year hasn't gone the way that you've wanted it to. Maybe this decade hasn't gone the way you've wanted it to things that you're still processing in you, I think this hope is for that. You're able to say amen to the incarnation and come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We wait for it with patience, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.